If you've been in the spiritual world a lot in terms of going to different classes or reading different books, what you find out is that there are enormous, there's enormous variety in the kind of teachings out there. Many, many kinds of meditation and prayer and dancing and chanting and so on. And even within the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha described it that there's 84,000 Dharma gateways, which means 84,000 different kinds of practices and techniques and so on, that can uh, help to face you towards freedom. Now that's a big number, that's a lot of them. And, and there's one common denominator, and I'm going to talk about the common denominator tonight, which is that each way of training the heart-mind asks for our energy and our attention. In other words, there's a certain amount of effort in any kind of training of the heart and mind. And this dedication of our energy, and it's called in the Buddhist tradition wise effort, is really what carries us on the spiritual path. Now now this is pretty commonsensical because we kind of know that anything in our life that if, we, if it matters to us, we have to in some way mobilize and give something of ourselves to it. And so it is with spiritual practice. But the Buddha emphasized this. And if you're familiar with Buddhism, there's a lot of different lists. Some of you heard about the different lists, whether it's the Eightfold Path or the Five, five Spiritual Faculties or the Seven Factors or the Sirens of Tetons or whatever. <laughs> Ten Perfections. So, and in each of these lists this um, factor of wise effort, of energy, is included. So there's that, that takes this energy to really wake up. And then there's a kind of paradoxical experience that many have touched on, which is that our genuine freedom, the moments of true freedom, really come from non-doing from not striving, from not efforting. It's almost considered the, the highest dharma, that our, that our liberation comes from letting go and letting be, what's sometimes called choiceless awareness. So I want to explore tonight how these two teachings of the importance of really mobilizing our energy and making a wise effort is very complementary with this teaching of the radical freedom that comes in totally letting go. And it's a really important inquiry. What I found, just to share with you, when I was doing a teacher training, I was being trained to teach. Joseph Goldstein was leading one of the trainings. And the first thing he said to us was this inquiry into wise effort, what it really means to us in our life, both in our daily life and in our meditation practice, is relevant when we're first starting practice and relevant when we're in our most, when we're most experienced. It keeps on being this inquiry, like what does it really mean to, to offer a wise effort? Again, effort is the purposeful energy that guides our actions. And it doesn't matter whether it's the effort we make in, in speaking with our children or planning a trip or meditating here on Wednesday nights. Wise effort is a purposeful energy. And 
to understand why it matters is to understand karma which goes to say that everything that happens in your life is the result of a past cause and that if you're having a hard time it's because of patterns of past thoughts and behaviors that have created a certain environment in your body and mind that creates suffering and that we can't do anything about the past in other words you might look back at your life and say well I did a lot of unwise effort and a lot of unwise actions and so on and there's nothing at all you can do about that all you can do is see how what happened in the past has had an effect and resolve in this moment in this moment to relate to what's happening with an open and kind presence the only place we have any power is right in this moment now that can be a conceptual understanding or it can be this incredibly invigorating realization that makes life profoundly creative that right this moment is the only place where you can have any influence on happiness and freedom this moment and if your way of relating to this moment is awake and open hearted you're creating you're creating seeds for future karma for happiness and freedom so what this means is that it becomes really important to be aware of the states of mind that are influencing us in any given moment that becomes critical now there's a real challenge in reflecting on effort and on the state of mind that is behind wise effort and the challenge is that we get very identified with our mental states our attention gets very fixated on the stories of what we're doing and where we're going and what we want to get done and it's not so simple it takes a real commitment to say okay let me pause and investigate what's the quality or state of mind here right now and yet unless we do that unless we pause and investigate and find out what's going on we keep tumbling into the future being driven by habitual states of mind so it takes a real commitment I sometimes think of it like if you're at a movie theater the habit is just to sit there and watch the movie and get engaged with the story and that's what we've agreed to do at a movie theater but our life is like that we're always kind of fixated on the screen of this world of events and happenings and if we're to really have any freedom we have to be willing to stop and inquire what's the quality of mind going on right now so let's, we're going to look further at how do we investigate in that way and the given is that when our effort is driven by wanting and fearing in other words when we're moving through the day and our actions are driven by wants and fears it keeps us in trance it keeps us in trance so the first key in cultivating a wise effort is looking at the conditioning that's behind unwise effort we have to be able to do that so what happens when our when our effort is misguided when we're snagged 
In a way, I call it, it's just an ego-based effort. It's not like there's something bad going on, but there's something that's very habitual going on. And by that I mean when we're not operating off of wise effort, our sense of identity is hitched to a sense of a separate self that's on his or her way somewhere, that's missing something or that something's wrong, that has to accomplish things, that's separate from other people. In other words, when we're operating off of unwise effort, we're in a certain kind of trance of a limited self. And if we're honest, we can look through our day, and I'm going to have you do some reflections tonight, and see how much in each day our activities come out of a sense of a threatened self that has to figure out things and manipulate things and prove themselves and so on. Last year I shared a story about poodles. I thought I'd share it again today because I happen to have two poodles, so I'm drawn to this story. A wealthy man went on a safari in Africa and decided to take his poodle along. One day the poodle started chasing some butterflies and found himself totally lost. He thought to himself, uh-oh, but luckily he noticed some bones on the ground nearby. He saw, oh, he saw himself, he got lost and he saw a leopard. That was the important piece. He saw a leopard rapidly heading in his way. Uh-oh. So luckily he noticed some uh, bones on the ground close by and immediately turned his back to the approaching cat and started to chew on them. Just as the leopard was about to pounce, the poodle called out, boy, that was one delicious leopard, but I'm still hungry. I wonder if there's another around. Upon hearing this, the leopard halted his attack mid-stride, a look of abject terror on his face. He crawled off to some nearby trees thinking, boy, that was a close call, that creature nearly got me. Meanwhile, a monkey had been watching this whole scene from high on a nearby tree. The monkey called out to the leopard, promising some valuable information in return for the leopard's protection. The leopard agreed to the deal and, of course, was furious to learn that he had just been made a fool of. The leopard, now with the monkey on his back, took off to find and eat the conniving canine. Once again, the poodle saw the leopard, this time with a monkey on its back, approaching. The poodle quickly put two and two together while realizing he wouldn't have time to escape. So he sat down with his back to his attackers, pretending he hadn't seen them. And just when they got close enough to hear, he exclaimed, Where's that damn monkey? I sent him off an hour ago to bring me another leopard. Now, part of the reason I like that, the, because the moral of the story is almost like, well, if you're conniving enough, you win, right? And in a way, that's pretty much the message we get in our culture. I mean, there really is a sense of um, it's safer to hold back information and not really expose yourself. The more information you have on someone else, the better. The more manipulative you can be, the better. And so we're very hooked on, it's not just the Protestant ethic, it's a Jewish ethic and it's a Buddhist ethic and it's just the, you know, this whole thing of striving and controlling. So this has been real relevant to me because I feel like one of the main places I've been working over the years in myself is kind of that element of striving. And I remember in college, and it's very vivid to me, uh, one night being really stoned and having one of those insights that was like, whoa. And the insight was that whatever I was doing, I was always trying hard. 
But it wasn't just trying hard. It was like on some level I was really striving. It didn't matter whether I was in conversation with someone, I just was working hard. Or it didn't matter whether I was, you know, doing schoolwork, I was working hard. Or with my political efforts, I was striving. And part of the realization was that I was tense, that I was like I was going through my life tense and striving. And I wasn't at home. And that insight didn't stop me. I mean, I I joined a yoga ashram and then I just transferred all my striving into um, doing yoga ashram kind of things. We'd get up real early and I'd do vigorous yoga for two and a half hours and sit long periods of meditation. And part of the challenge was that I got all these rewards for striving, like very rapturous states of mind and so on. The problem with the rewards were... I'd have to just go and do it all over again and try real hard to generate the state of mind. In other words, I was hooked on getting a fix, but it would go away if I wasn't trying hard. Now that's not a great setup. And then, of course, it, it wasn't just in my spiritual activities. I was, you know, trying hard on, you know, whether it was in other relationships, I, I became a therapist, and part of my trying hard was some notion of needing to fix. I was young, I was young. (laughs) So somewhere um, there was a belief down deep that in order to win approval, win love, win happiness, I needed to work really hard. That was the basic belief. I had to strive, I had to try very hard if I was going to be okay. And um, somewhere, late 20s, early 30s, it became very, very clear to me how profound the suffering was in that. How profound. It's hard sometimes if you're getting benefits from striving to really get it, but you get it eventually. You get it because, or for me, I got it because I was really never comfortable with myself. It was always like, how to do more, never enough. It was hard to relax. It's like Lily Tomlin says, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat, you know? Just to say that uh, this striving that is so rampant in our culture and in so many of our bodies, we come by it honestly in the sense that humans and other animals, if we don't work hard in certain ways, you know, to create shelters and protect ourselves against leopards or whatever it is. Well, if you imagine our our ancient mammal ancestors and if instead of watching out they're kind of basking in the sun, meditating and following their breath or whatever, pounce, you know, the leopard would pounce. So it's um, the sense is that there's a certain amount of vigilance and a certain amount of pursuing what we want or else there's no progeny. You know, there's this uh, honest seven-year-old admits calmly to her parents that Billy Brown had kissed her after class. How did that happen, gasped her mother. It wasn't easy, admitted the young lady, but three girls helped me catch him. so. (laughs) So there's a certain amount of effortful activity needed to survive But the reality is, and I think if we investigate our own experience, we're hooked on it. We're hooked on striving, on a kind of grasping effort. And when we start to really investigate, we can ask ourselves, well, when my activity or behavior is coming out of anxiety or fear, in other words, when there's fear that's that's 
pushing me to do this and do that. What's the effect of that? I mean, on a deep level we get it. That's not going to be the grounds for peace and freedom. But even, is it effective? Is fear-based action effective? Story. A man began to give large doses of cod liver oil to his Doberman because he had been told that the stuff was good for dogs. Each day he would hold the head of the protesting dog between his knees, force his jaws open, and pour the the liquid down its throat. One day the dog broke loose and spilled the oil on the floor. Then, to the man's great surprise, it returned to lick the spoon. That is when he discovered that what the dog had been fighting was not the oil, but his method of administering it. You understand that it if we sense, well, what's the, what's the effort there? Now, a way of considering this is what we're trying to find out is the attitude in our mind that's behind our activity. And if what all you leave today with, or this evening, is just that, that kind of interest in stopping now and then and sensing what's the attitude in my mind right now that's behind the way I'm going at this at work, or the way I'm approaching my child, or the way I'm trying to serve other people, or the way I'm meditating, and of course we're going to land up there. What's the attitude in my mind? Is it one of, something bad's going to happen, I have to do such and such? Is it, I want something, things are not enough as they are? This is an invitation to begin to investigate the attitude in our mind because if we're not aware of the attitude in our mind then our behaviors carry a quality of grasping or fear that keeps us trapped. I started noticing, in addition to um, the effects of my own striving, what happened uh, in social action when there was unwise effort when I was in my twenties I uh, was very, very involved with peace work, tenants' rights work and other social justice causes and many, many dedicated people that I was teaming up with very dedicated to, to change and working for change. But what was revealing was the effect of when there was a lot of ego in it. And this is something many of us have run into that when somebody was working for social change but it came out of a strong anger, there was this kind of a stridency that was completely alienating. And they might have been able to get X, Y, and Z done, but I don't know how worth it was, you know? So it's just very, very alienating. Or when there was a grasping after change, when the message was, you know, demanding everybody else to think this is as serious as I think this is, and I want to get this change done because, and it's partly a good personhood thing. I want to feel a meaningfulness in my life to make a difference, but that grasping after change was alienating. And the uh, message is not, we shouldn't do anything until there's zero ego that would be a a, a really a misunderstanding. It's more that if we really care about change, we need to keep aware of the attitude in our mind. Because if we're aware of that attitude, we'll be able to come into more presence and our efforts will come out of that presence and not be so in the grip of the grasping or the fear. I often... uh, 
mention Gandhi's approach, which I found really helpful, which is he took a, a day off each week and he said it was because he wanted to reflect and make sure his actions, his service came from the deepest, wisest part of his being. So we can take a day a week or a few moments in the midst of each day. Our check as regularly as possible. But the reality is it's not easy to stop in the midst of our activity and ask, where is this coming from? So if this is something that you feel inspired by, if you want to be more awake in your life, I would suggest you pick certain key areas where you know you make an effort. It might be at work or in a certain relationship or in a certain way of serving. And that's where you might want to particularly um, monitor and see what's happening. Ask that question, what's the attitude here? What motivates our, us to do this is this realization, and I mentioned this phrase last week, I think, which is how we live today is how we live our life. So if we have an idea of ends justify the means, that I'm getting this done and this done so that finally I can have that vacation or do the things I like or whatever, we're going to find that our whole life we're still in that same mode of getting something done. We don't know how to arrive. We don't know how to be here. So what happens is if we don't investigate our attitude, our whole life can be taken up pursuing in a way, our lives in a way that's filled with grasping and fear. We'll have never checked it out. This is a a story told by um, a woman who describes her father the weeks before his death. She says, My father, a blustery man's man of a guy who had difficulty communicating anything that was not a strongly held opinion, became someone else who I vaguely sensed was there in him but had never before met. I could talk to this other father in ways that would not have been possible all the years before. As you know, and she's speaking to somebody else in this story, my father was outstanding in his profession and in one of these last conversations I had asked him what he felt was a contribution he had made to the world that made his life feel worth it to him. I had thought it would be to point to one of his many award-winning projects, but he had smiled and said, You, of course... I don't recall ever having another word of praise from him in my whole lifetime, but it was enough. For me, that story, um, in that story is the reason that we choose to stop and check and sense, oh, where really are these actions coming from? Am I in touch with what matters? Because when we're caught in the fear or the grasping, we're forgetting who we are and we're forgetting what matters. So just take a moment maybe to reflect. We'll just check in a little bit and, if you will, just to close your eyes, let the attention go inward. Before you direct your attention anywhere else, just sense yourself right here. 
so you feel and connect with what presence is. You might feel your breath, feel your heart, sense what matters to you, how you want to be living your life, the attitude, the quality of mind, that it's your wish or your longing to be living from. And then just take some moments to reflect perhaps today or yesterday on something that you are putting effort into, some area of your life that matters that you give your energy to. It might be with work or in a conversation with another person. might be a creative project, exercise. And just with some curiosity and interest, scan that experience for your attitude. What was the mood or attitude underneath it or driving it? Notice if the effort was compelled by a sense of anxiety, a sense of something's wrong, something needs to be fixed, grasping, something's missing, wanting to control somebody or control yourself. without judgment. This is just the natural conditioning of selfing, of ego. Just sense if that was there. And if you can, sense your experience of yourself when you're making an effort that's driven by wanting or fearing in that way. Do you like yourself? Do you feel at home in yourself? The beginning of opening the door to wise effort is just to notice the habitual kind of attitude that drives unwise effort get familiar with that. You can open your eyes when when you'd like. So as you can imagine, whatever your personality habits are in terms of making an effort in daily life, you're going to bring those same patterns into making an effort in meditation or spiritual life. And Chogyam Trungpa, who's a wonderful Tibetan teacher, described this as spiritual materialism. 
that it's inevitable that to whatever what degree we're identified with an ego that's trying to control things, when we do spiritual practice, we'll try to control things there too. It's just not exempt. So what's important is to, with, with humor and wisdom and perspective, just know that's the case and be willing to look at that too. So that when we're meditating, let's say our intention is to be present, to let the breath be maybe an anchor, but to be really open and present, that there's, a, there's some awareness going on of, well, what's the attitude behind this? Am I striving for something? Am I trying to get a certain state of mind? Am I afraid that I'm going to fall short? If the ego is making an effort in meditation that's driven by fear, there's going to be a sense of having to control the mind or fight something. You're going to be at war with your experience. Okay? That's the, that's the unwise effort that happens in that way. If there's a fear of, of doing it wrong, there'll be a lot of judging. And generally, people that are afraid of failing or feel or they have the doubts of, I'm just not cut out for meditating. And that their effort, what happens is it undermines their effort and they swing not just to unwise effort but to no effort which again doesn't work. If there's a craving for experience, which was the case for me for many years, that I, when I joined the ashram I was attracted to being able to control my mind into having really rapturous experiences. And I was attached to them. And there was a crave, and so there was a sense of dissatisfaction when they'd go away and a sense of, okay, got to rev it up again to create them. And there's, with that kind of a ego-driven effort, there's a sense of never really getting there because you have to like do so much work to sustain something and it goes away but you never land for good, you know. The Buddha gave a classical metaphor for effort and it was the lute, playing the lute and that the way you tighten the strings for lute to have a perfect sound it's neither too tight in other words, not a, a striving trying to get it just perfect effort nor is it too loose, where there's really no sound that, that resonates at all. So that we can see this in our practice. And, and again, let me ask you to close your eyes and just for a moment reflect on your sense of your own meditation practice. And the inquiry here is again, what's the kind of attitude or mood that flavors the energy you put into meditation? Is there a sense of striving and judging it? In other words, wanting it to be better, like the sense of you're not really meditating right yet? Is that the underlying attitude? That you're just not there yet? You don't have it right yet? Is there an attitude of of indifference or inattention, like it really doesn't matter. I mean, I can't do it anyway and it's too hard and kind of, that's the loose side of the lute, just not really trying. Or maybe do you go back and forth and sometimes you try really hard but it's not quite right and it's not quite working and other times you kind of give up and... Just a sense, and this is really powerful, if you cannot judge, but just honestly look at the conditioning of your own mind. What's the attitude?
And when you're ready, open your eyes. The sign of an attitude that supports us and faces us towards full liberation, the sign of an attitude that really can carry us is sincerity. In other words, if underneath, if you're checking to sense, well, what's going on underneath there, and you can find sincerity, like just an earnestness, not grasping after anything, not fighting anything, but just a sincere caring about presence. That's the attitude that can carry you. I always find it interesting that in uh, Europe the word sincere comes from, uh, means without wax. And in Europe for centuries when plates were cracked they would coat them over with wax to cover the cracks. And the given is that we've got all, this, all these cracks and so on. And if sincerity means that we're not covering over anything, we're not controlling, we're not manipulating, there's just an authenticity. Okay, a story about Ananda, the Buddha's, uh, really the cousin and most devoted disciple, and how he related to meditation. After the Buddha's death, a great council of enlightened um, beings was planned, and Ananda, who had been the Buddha's most devoted disciple, was not entitled to attend because although he had worked at it strenuously for years, he was not yet enlightened. So on the eve of the council meeting he was determined to practice vigorously all night and not stop until he attained his goal. But all he succeeded in doing was making himself exhausted and discouraged, not the slightest progress in in spite of his efforts. So toward dawn he made a very conscious decision and that was to let go of all striving, all efforts, and just simply be there, just rest. And in that moment that he let go of all striving, all of the kind of efforts he was making, when he lost all greed for attaining a state and all fear of not attaining a state, he rested his head back on the pillow and became enlightened. So what freedom? The Buddha said that freedom is non-clinging. There was no clinging whatsoever. He just rested back in what he was, in awareness itself. No notion of having to get somewhere or do something. It's those attitudes that were not there yet, that we're striving, we're trying to get somewhere, we're afraid of something not happening, that actually prevent us from realizing and inhabiting what we are. Now the given is that we're often caught in dualistic contracted states of mind and that means that we need a certain kind of an effort or energy to help create an atmosphere for letting go. But that quality of wise effort does not have grasping. It's not going to be one that exhausts us. Now if we look at it honestly, Ananda had years of meditation training. It wasn't like he decided he was going to be enlightened and he just rested back and then vavoom, you know, it all just appeared in consciousness. He had already trained his mind a lot. For most of us, given our conditioning, it's necessary to consciously train our mind, to purposefully 
gather our energies and direct them towards the present moment. That's, for most of us, key and essential. And yet the real moments of freedom don't come when we're trying hard or trying to do anything. When we've created that atmosphere for presence through our wise effort, it's possible to just let go. It's possible to trust what's already here, which is what we are. Our true refuge is what we are. It's the awareness that's here. So I'd like to spend the last bit of time just reflecting a little with you on what it is that creates that atmosphere of freedom, that creates the attitude or mood internally that really allows us to be free. And in a simple way, the first element is learning to see what's true. In any moment that we can begin to really get that this life is fleeting, that it's impermanent, that will guide our efforts. Our efforts become wise efforts. When I shared with you that story about the man who had gone through life and his daughter didn't even know how he valued her, Every one of us, I would imagine, can look at things about the way we've lived our life and know that if we could, we would want to do it differently. Every one of us has done things that have been reactive, have treated other people in ways if we had realized the suffering, we wouldn't have done it, have treated ourselves in ways that if we realized what that was doing to us, we wouldn't have done it have put a lot of energy into something and realized it was motivated by, by fear or clinging and wished that we could have spent more of our moments differently. If we had known that somebody was going to die or leave, we would have been different perhaps. I mean, every one of us can look back like that, right? I mean, isn't that part of just being human? What it is that allows us to this moment onward be more aligned with our hearts is to really get its passing quickly, its fleeting. Not to have the illusion of impermanence so we get distracted. So that's the first piece. It's, um, remember Thich Nhat Hanh, I, I share this often at one retreat, the end of it, and this is a retreat I attended maybe 19, 20 years ago, the way he ended it was he'd have us stand in pairs and first we'd say namaste, I see the divine in you to each other, bowing. And then he had us give a hug and first we'd reflect, I'm going to die. That was the reflection. And then we'd reflect, you're going to die. And then we'd reflect, and we just have these moments together. The power of recognizing impermanence is to make this moment matter. Then, rather than being identified with a kind of attitude of let's make an effort, I'm afraid this is going to happen, I want to control that, there's a lot more awake quality of presence so that our effort, our energy is dedicated to what really, really makes a difference for us. So that's the first reflection, is that it's all passing. 
The second reflection is, so what really does matter if it's all passing? If you know that I'm going to die and you're going to die, this person that you're with tonight that you go home to be with or perhaps somebody you're with tomorrow, that we're both going to die, then what matters? I often share Suzuki Roshi's teaching that the most important thing is to remember the most important thing. It's an amazing one. So that's, that's the next reflection. If you want to keep on aligning your heart with truth, if you want to have your efforts be wise efforts, then we, we reflect on what matters. And what we find is that, and this is the third reflection, if something matters to us, what's going to make that possible? If love matters, what makes it possible? If freedom matters, if truth matters, if helping others matters. And what we realize is that whatever most matters to us, the only place it's possible is right here in the present moment. Only by being here can we realize what our heart longs for. So we'll do another reflection, okay? This is an opportunity for you to go more deeply into really aligning yourself with your heart. And you might sense the brevity of life, the realness of how this evening's almost over and how the summer's over, children that grow up quickly, parents that are, if not dead now, we're going to lose, others that we lose. Sensing that you're at the end of your own life looking back and just asking that timeless question of what really matters. What matters in this brief flash of a life? What is the attitude that can really inspire you to move forward? So that regardless of past patterns, you can meet the present moment with a fresh quality of awareness. You can change your karma. You can change the patterns. You might revisit something that you put effort into recently. Work, project, communication, something with another person. And sense the possibility of, as you redo this experience, which I'm going to ask you to do, that you can really sense life, impermanence, what matters to you, that you could be aware of the attitude that might habitually form in your mind, be awake to that. 
And then just in the silence right now, move through that, that activity again, whether it's something at work or with another person, and redo it in a way that really matches your deepest longing and a clear attention. Redo it from sincerity. as you move towards a wise effort in this experience, sense your own experience of who you are. Who are you when your energy and your activity is coming from that sincerity? What's your sense of yourself? Now letting go of any idea of the past, take some moments now to simply practice presence right here, exploring what it means to bring a wise effort into these last few moments of meditation tonight. That's your last inquiry. So as with any meditation, you might just sense your intention to be present. You might invite yourself to relax a little. To see if it's possible to let go a little more. You might let your senses be awake so you're aware of sounds letting them wash through. Aware of the aliveness inside the body. And the movement of the breath. There's a simple intention to just be aware of what's happening and to let it be as it is. Including being aware of if there's any attitude in the mind that's striving right now, that's trying to have a certain experience that's given up or is indifferent, 
is judging, just to include that in what you're aware of. Mary Oliver writes of the wisdom of impermanence. She says, every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires in the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it and when the time comes to let it go to let it go you might explore the culmination of wise effort really this relaxing and letting go into what is just being the awareness coming home to what you are Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.